Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and magnificent promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world through lust. Before we open God's word together, let's ask his guidance on our time of study. Our Father, we are reminded that in your word, our Lord prayed, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. That in that, those two brief statements, Jesus affirmed the fact that there was absolute truth. And he also identified that that absolute truth could be understood through your word. And third, he prayed that we would be sanctified or set apart, that that we would be matured spiritually, and that that could only come through your word. So, Father, we take time many times during the week to read your word, to study your word, to have classes where we continue to teach the word and on Sunday morning to teach your word so that we might grow, so that we might mature, so that we might do what the Apostle Paul challenged us to do in Romans 12:2, and that is to exchange the garbage opinions of mankind that so often shape our thinking with that which has eternal value, that which is to be desired more than gold, and that is your word. So, Father, we pray now that as we look at your word, and especially at a topic that is somewhat difficult for a lot of people to really understand, and that, that's, not, that's not to be surprising because it is something that is produced only by God the Holy Spirit in our lives. But help us to understand it and to see how we are to grow and mature in order to see it in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we'll begin in Ephesians chapter 3. Open, so, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. So open your Bibles there. And what we are going to look at is the topic of love. Something that is so poorly understood, I think probably in every generation, but some generations just abuse it more than others do. And we live in such a world, a world where people talk a lot about love, but the more they talk about it, the less they demonstrate any real understanding of what love is. If we were to start a study of love by going to the English dictionary, most dictionaries define love first and foremost as an emotion, and that's how many people in our society and our culture think of love. It is a feeling. And in the postmodern world in which we live, influenced by the presuppositions of postmodernism that there's no absolute truth, that reason, the use of reason and logic 
have nothing to do with finding meaning and value in life. And so in the development of the thinking of the world and the culture, if reason and knowledge are not necessary to find truth, then the alternative becomes something extremely subjective, and it's all about how something makes us feel. And so how often has it been in your life and mine, and let's say, for example, it's probably something like this has escaped our lips at one point or another, is that this must be right because I can't imagine God not wanting me to enjoy something that seems so beautiful and wonderful. And that is an opinion that is expressed that truth comes from feeling. Yet as we look at Scripture, we see an emphasis on truth so many times. Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Just an extraordinary statement that he is identifying himself as the personification of truth and that therefore truth is something that is eternal, something that is absolute, and something that is personified in the person of Jesus Christ. And he identified it with his word. As I mentioned in my prayer in John chapter 17, he prays to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. That word sanctify is a difficult word for a lot of people to use today because it's an archaic English word, but it means to be set apart to the service of God. And sanctification is the theological concept, biblical concept of growing in our spiritual life, growing to spiritual maturity so that we can better serve God by being set apart to him, having our thinking set apart to God because it aligns with the thinking of God. It does not align with the thinking of the culture, the thinking of the world, the thinking of what is most popular, the thinking of the the ideals and values that are promoted on social media and through um, films and television shows and other forms of, of entertainment. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 4 that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And that is a profound statement if we really think about it. Because if truth were told, most of us are more friendly with the world than we're willing to admit because we grew up surrounded by all of these concepts, all of these values, and they shape us. They shape every generation, and they have ever since Adam sinned. Every generation gets shaped by these human opinions. And so we have to reshape our thinking. That's what Paul says in Romans uh, 12.2 when he says, do not be conformed to the world. And the word there that's translated conform has the idea of being something being pressed into a mold. Don't let the world influence you. Don't let the world press you into a mold. Don't let the world tell you you have to act like other people or that you're part of some group. 
that because you are white or because you are male or female or because you are Hispanic or black or whatever it may be, that you have certain characteristics that are belong to you because that's your identity. Identity philosophy, identity politics, identity everything is just another facet, another way in which the devil expresses his various philosophies to get us into thinking groupthink instead of being individuals. And we're all held accountable individually before God. And the world has its view of love. Dictionaries start by defining it as emotion. And love cannot be an emotion if God commands love because emotions are not responsive to commands. Emotions are responsive to circumstances, to things. And so one day we feel really nice and wonderful about something or about somebody, and the next day we wake up and we didn't get enough sleep and we didn't eat right the day before and we just feel sort of overwhelmed by life and we don't feel like we love anybody. And so those feelings go up and down and they change all the time. And so for love to have any sort of value, it has to be based on something that is not so mutable, but something that is immutable. And therefore, it must be based on the character of God. We are told in Scripture that God is love. God. We are also told in Scripture that God is holy, another term that is rarely understood very well because it's somewhat antiquated. The idea of holiness is the idea of being distinct, of being uh, unique, one of a kind. And it is often thought to be the idea of being morally pure. That's not the core meaning of of the word. It means to be set apart because you have various uh, pieces of furniture and uh, articles of worship that are used in the tabernacle and in the temple, and they are said to be holy. But something made out of wood or metal cannot be morally good or morally evil but it is set apart to the service of God. So we have to start with that as the basic idea. And God being holy is reflected in the numerous statements as you go through the scripture is that God says, I am God, I alone. There is none like me over and over and over again. There is none like God. So God is holy, he's one of a kind, and God is love. And so we have to turn to God, who is the pattern, the model, the exemplar for what love is. And I've talked about this many, many times as we go through the scriptures, that we see this ultimately in several passages that talk about the gospel. God, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was undeserving. And in English, we have one word, love, to express multitude of various nuances. The Greeks had 
four different words, two of which are primarily used in the Scripture, and we'll look at those as we go through this morning. But we need to understand what the Bible says. That's our starting point for understanding anything is really God. So let's sort of go back and look at our passage in Ephesians, review it a second, and then uh, go to where we ended last time. In this section... We're going to talk about walking in unity, then putting on the new man in the latter half of Ephesians 4, and then do not grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, and then Ephesians 5 begins walk in love. Now, if you remember, our passage in Ephesians 4 begins to walk worthy, And then there are subsequent commands on how we are to walk or not to walk, and walking being a metaphor for how we live our lives. But we are to walk in unity, and that's the section we're looking at right now. And so Paul began by saying, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, strongly urge you to conduct your life in a manner worthy of the exalted position to which you were summoned. And by that he means that at the instant that we trust in Christ, we have been given a new identity. And we have this chart that shows eternal realities and temporal realities. The circle represents the fact that as Paul develops this in Ephesians 5, he says that we are children of light. John talks about the fact in 1 John that God is light and that we are to walk in the light. So we have two dimensions here. We have the fact that we are children of light as an absolute reality when we are placed in Christ at the instant of our salvation by the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Then we become adopted into God's royal family, and we are are sons of light. But we also have an experiential reality that has to do with our day-to-day living as we are walking by the Holy Spirit or we're not walking by the Holy Spirit. And so some days and sometimes we walk in the light as he is in the light, but other times we don't. We walk in darkness according to our sin nature. So what Paul is talking about here is that those who are in Christ, those who have trusted Christ as Savior, are immediately given this exalted position, adopted into God's royal family, and we have this new calling. That is our exalted position in Christ. And with that new calling, we have a new identity. We're called a new man in Ephesians 2.15, a new body, also Ephesians 2.15, a holy temple, Ephesians 2.21 to 24, that is the church is being built into this holy temple. We're called the body of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called the royal priesthood, family of God, and we are a new household. All of these describe this new exalted position that is ours, and with that exalted position, then there is also an expectation of how we should live. That is why Paul says that we are urged to walk worthy of that exalted position in Christ. Now, what characterizes it, we studied the last couple of lessons, is that this is characterized, New King James states it as with all lowliness and gentleness that is also accompanied by patience, that is long-suffering. And then we have two 
participial phrases that also modify that, bearing with one another in love and making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So I charted this for us last time, that that walk worthy, how does a worthy walk look? How are we going to define it? That there are certain characteristics that accompany it, and that is what's expressed by that preposition with, and that in the blue we see that it's accompanied by what is described in in the New King James is lowliness, and this gets into the whole area of humility that is difficult for people to understand. It's not that we are making ourselves lowly, but the idea in humility is that we don't think more of ourselves nor less of ourselves than we ought to think. We have a true picture of who we are. We're honest about that, and we get that from the Word of God. And the word gentleness is also a problem. A lot of men have problem with the word gentleness because they think, well, is that getting in touch with my feminine side or does that, is that, isn't that an effeminate term? And sometimes there are some Greek concepts here that are extremely difficult to translate into English because we just don't have a corresponding word for it. And the word for gentleness is really indicates someone who is its strength under control. And some have used the idea of taking a, a wild stallion and then breaking the stallion so that he comes under the control of his master. That stallion still has all of the strength that he had before, but now... It is channeled by being under the control of his owner, his writer, his master. And we see that these words translated as humility and also gentleness are used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, who certainly wasn't this meek and mild run-him-over Jesus that you have in liberal theology. This is the Jesus who went into the temple to initiate his ministry and at the end of his ministry. And the scripture says that when he saw how the temple, his father's house, was being profaned by the money changers who were using it as a means to rip off the people and selling them at over uh, overinflated prices, the animals for sacrifice that Jesus approached their tables and overturned them and bodily threw them out of the temple courtyard. That's gentleness, strength under control. It is the fact that he went to the cross, he humbled himself in obedience to the point of death. He's under the authority of God. Moses was called gentle as well and the most humble man who lived. These are pictures of strong leaders, but they were under the authority of God and they walked in obedience to God. And so we come to that last phrase there in this verse that we are to bear with one another in love. And this is using a, actually the Greek word there should be translated putting up with. And I like translating it that way because we're all sinners and we all have aspects of our personality that we really don't want anybody else at church to see. But our kids, our parents, 
our spouses all see those sides of our personality. And we're not always enjoyable people to be around. And our children, parents, spouses, friends, em, uh, fellow employees at times have to put up with us. And we have to put up with them. And we do it in love. And the phrase here in the Greek uses the Greek preposition in, E-N, which I usually see here as being instrumental. That means it's talking about the means we use to be able to handle people that aren't really being too lovable at the moment. We are able to put up with them by means of love. We have to use our love for others in order to understand and put up with them in those kinds of circumstances. So before we go to our next verse, I want you to turn back just a few pages in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Now, when we are talking about love, there's several ways in which pastors and theologians have struggled with how do we articulate the essence of what this love is. Because what we will see here in Galatians 5.22 is that this is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the first one listed. That means you can't gin it up in your own life. You can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be loving today. That's my goal. It's not something produced from within. It is something that is the result of what we read in Galatians 5.16, where the command is to walk in the Spirit. It's that same preposition that we have, uh, that we looked at in uh, in Ephesians uh, 4.2 there, that we put up with one another by means of. So we are to walk by means of the Spirit. The command that came a little earlier was in verse 14, where Paul says, For all of the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that seems like somewhat of a challenging thing to do, especially if you have a neighbor And neighbor is defined elsewhere in Scripture as anyone that comes within the periphery of our life. It may be someone we don't know. It may be someone who drives erratically and cuts us off in traffic. It may be someone who isn't quite adept yet at their new job at the cash register at the supermarket. It may be someone on Facebook or Twitter or some other social media account that we think is an absolute idiot. It may be any of those. We don't have to know them personally, but we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, when Paul, I mean, when when Moses wrote that in the law, that was as a part of the way in which Israelites were to conduct themselves. They already loved themselves. You know, secular psychology came up with the uh, gross error that nobody loves themselves, and the Bible constantly contradicts that. Love your neighbor as yourself. Some people say, well, first you have to learn how to love yourself. No, your sin nature loves you from the moment you were born. 
The orientation of your sin nature from the moment you took your first breath is, it's all about me. Aren't I wonderful? And I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs, and everybody's going to pay attention to me. And we developed great skills of manipulation to get people to pay attention to us from that moment on. And we weren't, not, we, we, we weren't all that, we couldn't even talk or think yet, but that's just the natural thrust of that sin nature. So God said, see, that's how you love yourself. You've been loving yourself since the day you took your first breath, and you are to put your neighbor first and love them like you love yourself. And that was a pretty difficult challenge. And as we'll see, Jesus came along and gave us an even more difficult challenge. But first I want to look at this, is that when the fruit... When, when Paul tells them to walk by means of the Spirit, he says you will not, in a very strong way, fulfill the lust of the flesh. The flesh is a term for the sin nature, our orientation to rebellion against God and disobedience to God. Sin is nothing more than doing anything that contradicts the character of God, any word, thought, or deed that contradicts the character of God. And sin is not... 10 things or 20 things, it's a host of things. It's mental attitude sins like jealousy and envy and anger and resentment, bitterness, uh, refusal to forgive others. And all of those are mental attitude sins. And then there's sins of the tongue. There's gossip and maligning and all kinds of different things that we say about others, telling lies. And then there are the works, uh, the overt sins, which are the things we usually think of. But all sins are motivated by arrogance and self-absorption. And so when we're walking by the Spirit, though, we won't bring to completion. That's what it means when it says, you shall not fulfill. And it's stated in such a way in the Greek that you have a double negative, which is bad grammar in English, but it's an intensification in Greek. And it is stating it will be impossible because as long as our focus and we're looking at the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit, we're not going to fulfill the drives of the sin nature. And the best illustration of Scripture, I guess, is when Peter is walking on the water and his eyes are on Christ. And as long as he had his eyes on Christ, he could walk on the water. But the second he sort of, his eyes just sort of flickered and he caught that wave out of the corner of his eye and he looked at that took his eyes off of Christ, and then he fell. When we take our eyes off of walking by the Spirit, the consequence of that is that we will sin. Char- uh, various characteristic sins are listed in verses 19 through 21, but the focal point here is that God the Holy Spirit produces a certain character. Walking by the Spirit produces the character of verse 22. And this takes us to love because the primary command is you shall love your neighbor as yourself that's here in the text. You do that by walking in the Spirit, and that's why the first thing that is produced is love. But look at what accompanies because it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a singular, and there's all these other character qualities that come into play, and the Holy Spirit produces them over time. It's a matrix that's developed over time. And love is the first one, but it is often associated with elements of joy, which is not happiness, which is ephemeral, and we feel happy one day and not so happy the next. But it has that idea of a solid 
tranquility that even when we're feeling down, even when we're grieving, even as our Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is sweating blood through his pores because of the horrors he's anticipating of bearing our sin on the cross the next day, he still had joy. He never lost that. And so joy is there. Peace is there. That is part of that tranquility and patience, which we just studied, accompanies that worthy walk. Uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. These words are going to show up again as we study love. And then uh, gentleness, which is that word prouse, lower right-hand corner, which has that idea of being under control. It is translated meek or gentle or considerate, and we just don't quite capture it with any English word, and self-control. All of those are related to love. Now, what makes love so difficult is what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35. He said, and talking to his disciples, he is shifting gears from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's shifting gears to the characteristics of the church age, and he says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Well, that sounds pretty close to loving your neighbor. But now he's talking specifically about Believers love one another, others in the body of Christ. Love one another as I have loved you. Uh-oh. It was hard enough to love my neighbor as myself, but now I've got to love other Christians like Jesus loves them? That seems pretty impossible. It is. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. It is a supernatural way of life that requires a supernatural uh, energy, power to do it, and that's the walk by the Spirit. You can't get there if you're not walking by the Spirit. And walking by the Spirit has to be in conformity to what Jesus prayed in John 17, that we are to be sanctified by means of truth. So you can't separate it from that moral conviction of absolute truth that comes from the Scripture. So Jesus says that we are to love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that just isn't going to happen because we wake up in the morning and say, oh, I feel so great today, and I'm going to have to love everyone, and I just feel good about that. And then something happens about 30 minutes later, and it's all gone. So how do we understand love and define it? And you've heard me say this for many, many years, that it is difficult, difficult to define love. That's why most definitions fall short, and what happens is we have descriptions. And a description is not a definition, but that's another topic. But there are some things that we can only grasp if we have some kind of group of word pictures that describe it, and then we can begin to get it. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is often called the love chapter because it focuses on love. Now, if you were reading or studying your way through 1 Corinthians and you came to 1 Corinthians 13, you might well wonder why does God or why does Paul interrupt his discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 
with this what seems to be a diversion into talking about love. And then in chapter 14, he comes back and he's talking about problems and regulations for two specific gifts, prophecy and tongues. Now, I'm not going to get off into talking about prophecy and tongues and the cessation of gifts and all of that because the purpose of this is to focus on how Paul describes love. And this section goes from verse 1 down through verse 8. It is divided between 3 and 4. The first three verses are quite distinctive. And when we get there, we say, why is he stating it this way? He makes three statements that are all based on using or starting with an if clause that in the King James is translated with the word though to get across the fact that he's not talking about reality. He is talking, he's giving hypothetical examples. But we should say, why does he use these specific examples? In verse 1, he talks about the, it's translated tongues of men and of angels, which has always caused confusion. It's an antiquated term. The word tongues means languages. So I prefer to translate it, the languages of men and of angels. In verse 2, he talks about prophecy and all mystery and all knowledge. And in verse 3, he talks about giving away all that he has, and he talks about delivering up his body to be burned. In connection with those things, he says, uh, he talks about uh, a sounding brass and clanging cymbal. Why does he use that language? What's he talking about there? In the second verse, he talks about removing mountains, not just one, many. Why does he use that example? In verse 3, he simply says that if he doesn't have love, it just profits him nothing. Actually, he makes four conclusions. He make, In the first verse, he makes two conclusions that if he that if he has these abilities, if he were to have these abilities to talk all of the languages of men and of angels, then he would be, first of all, he'd be like a noisy gong, and second, he would be like a clanging cymbal. In the second verse, he gives a third example, that if he could do all of these things but not have love, he would be nothing, nothing at all. And in the third verse, he says, if he did all of these things, he would and did not have love, it would profit him nothing. So what he is doing in those first three verses is telling us that without love, every other thing that we do in attempting to serve God will be meaningless. It will not have eternal value. It will not have spiritual significance. And it will be worthless if it is not done from love. So in this first verse, he says, Though I speak with the languages of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Now, what he is doing in each of these examples, he starts off with, with an if clause in the Greek, if I did this. In English, we have one way to express what's called a conditional clause. If it's not raining... I'm going to go fishing. 
We have an if there. We don't know what kind of if that is, what the nuance is. In Greek, they could express it one of four different ways. The first way is that it comes close to meaning, since it's not raining, I'm going to go fishing. That's what's called a first-class condition. If, and I'm assuming it's not because there was no rain in the forecast, I'm going to go fishing. The second is, well, we, it just, you look out the window and it's just pouring rain. And what you were saying is if, but it's not, uh, or but it is in, that, in the case of the example, if it's not raining, but it is, I'd go fishing. You're really stating that uh, your wish is that it wasn't raining, but it is, so you're really not going to go fishing. So it's the idea of if, and it's not true. The third is, you don't know whether it's going to rain or not. There's, it's cloudy. It could rain. It might not rain. And so you use a third-class condition that the way we usually express it. It could be maybe it'll rain, maybe it won't. If it doesn't rain, then I'm going to go fishing. But there's a number of different ways in which that third-class condition can be used. And one of the other ways is that it is used to express something that is hypothetical. You're just saying, and, and it's often hyperbolic. In other words, it's not talking about someone that something that you really think could happen. You are expressing it in an extreme form in order to make a point. Now, as Paul expresses these three conditions, he is using a lot of hyperbole. He is not saying that all of these things can actually take place. Some of them could. He said, if I speak with the languages of men and of angels. Now, Paul had, as an apostle, I believe every apostle had all of the spiritual gifts. So Paul had the spiritual gift of tongues, or speaking in human languages that he had not previously learned. And then he says, if I speak with the language of angels. Well, we don't know if there are angelic languages. That's just, you you hear a lot of people say, oh, I've got a prayer language. It's an angelic language. Oh, really? You have a prayer language. Isn't that great? How do you know it's a prayer language? Oh, when I pray in that language, I know God always answers that prayer. Really? How did you know what you prayed for? You don't understand the language. And you're saying God answered your prayer, but you don't know what you prayed for. That doesn't make sense. There's not one place in the Bible where an angel speaks in anything other than a human language. So it is merely pure speculation without foundation, something that would be an objection in a court of law, and the objection would be sustained, that this is not, there's no evidence for angelic languages. It is just a supposition. If I could do all of this, That's what all of these examples are. If I did all of this and didn't have love, that's Paul's point. Without love, it's nothing. Love is the sine qua non for the Christian life. Sine qua non is a Latin phrase meaning without which nothing. It is the indisputable necessary element that must be there, and without it, it's useless. So he says, if I were to speak with languages of men and of angels, but did not have love, I would be like a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, why does he say all of this? Well, because he's writing to these believers who are living in Corinth. Corinth is in the Peloponnesian Peninsula. 
that is at to the southern end of Greece. And it's just south of a small, narrow isthmus. That's a piece of land that connects it to the ma- mainland. And just on the other side of the mainland was a place called Delphi. And in the ancient world, there was a temple there, and there was a priestess there who stayed inside of this small area that they believe was some sort of gases escaped from from somewhere subterranean, and she could is like sniffing glue. She would go into some sort of altered state of consciousness and speak in what we would call gibberish. And that, that's what that was. And so the Corinthians confused this, that spirituality, this, this oracle. That's what they called her. The oracle gets close to the gods, and she speaks in this, these other languages, and they confuse that with the biblical gift of tongues. And so Paul is making specific allusions here to their pagan background, their pagan, pagan worship. And, in fact, the oracle of Delphi or the oracle of, of, of Delphi, would often say things and answer things. Kings would go to the oracle with their questions, and she would answer in very cryptic riddles that could easily be interpreted in different ways. For example, Creasus, the king of Lydia, was couldn't decide whether he should ally himself with the Greeks against the Persians or should ally himself with the Persians against the Greeks. So he sent a messenger to the Oracle of Delphi and said, who should I line up with? Should I fight the Persians or should I fight the Greeks? And the Oracle allegedly replied, uh, if Creasus makes war on the Persians, he would destroy a mighty empire. Well, he made war against the Persians, and they destroyed him. His was the empire that was destroyed. So you could easily uh, misunderstand these these ambiguous statements. Uh, Thomas Hobbes wrote about the Oracle of Delphi and said, and for incoherent speech. See, that's what how the Oracle spoke. Uh, it was amongst the Gentiles taken for one sort of prophecy because the prophets of their oracles intoxicated with the Spirit or vapor from the cave of the Pythian oracle at Delphi, were for a time really mad and spake like madmen, of whose loose words a sense might be made to fit any event, in such sort as all bodies are said to be made of materia prima. Of course, that fits any kind of fortune teller, any kind of soothsayer, that's any kind of uh, interpretation of astrology. So this is what Paul is saying. If even if I could do all of these things and I didn't have love, it'd be nothing. He's not saying they're real. He's just using it as a exaggerated example. In the second verse, let's just skip past this, uh, the, the use of the terms here for sounding brass or clanging cymbal, these were used in the pagan worship to get the attention of the gods. And so he's just saying you're just as useless as cymbals and gongs. Verse 2, he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. See, that's not real. Why do you know it's not real? To understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he'd have to be omniscient. Only God is omniscient. So he's using examples that are 
the most extreme that he can come up with in order to say, if I was Superman and had omniscience and could do all of this, but I did it without love, it would be useless and not have any eternal value. And then he says, if I bestow, and the word there has to do with uh, giving, if I were to give all of my goods, sell everything I have, take all the money, feed the poor, and if I gave my body to be burned but have not love, it would not profit me anything. It would have no spiritual value. Love is the key element. It would have no profit. That's the word of phileo in the Greek, which means to be useful, to be beneficial, to have any value whatsoever. And so after that, in verse 4, he starts defining what love is. This is not hard for us to go through. It's not difficult. Most translations are clearly in the middle of the paper on the target. He says, love suffers long. It means patience. It's that word we studied last week, macrothemia, that accompanies a worthy walk. So love is patient. Love is kind. That's the word kreistuomai, which means you to show oneself mild, to be kind, to be gentle, to be morally good and benevolent. It indicates a positive reaching out to people to, to help them. It's kind. It does not envy. That's the word zelao, which is a, it's translated jealous. It's translated envy, envious. It's also translated as zealous in a good sense, that you're passionate about doing something that's, that's right. But in a negative sense, it is to be out of control emotionally, to be jealous or envious of someone And love doesn't have that. That's not part of its characteristic. You don't love someone if you're envious or jealous. Because to be envious or jealous shifts it to being all about you. And love is all about the other person. And when you're jealous, it's all about you and what you should get and what you are due. The second example is that love does not parade itself. This is per peruomai which has the idea of not bragging or speaking emptily of its own accomplishments. Excuse me, that's the last word. Does not parade itself, I put it down here instead, is fusia, which means to be puffed up or conceited. And it relates to the third word. So it doesn't puff itself up. It doesn't blow its own horn. It doesn't talk about itself. It doesn't bring attention to itself. That's fusio, fusiao. And then peri peruomai is it does not brag, it does not put itself in center stage. It's not about me. That's the sin nature. So love is really, true biblical love is contradictory to the work of the flesh, which means that if you're not a believer growing, you can't really love. That's why some people call it Christian love. You've heard different terms. You've heard unconditional love. This is when I'm going to love somebody, but even no matter what they do, I'm still going to love them. I'm not putting conditions on it. If they do anything that is hateful or resentful or mean to me, I'm still going to love them. I'm not putting conditions on it. That's God's love for us. He loved us even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. 
So that explains one aspect of it. Another aspect is I use the word impersonal. That's because we have so many people that we need to express love to that we don't know. There are people that we meet in the grocery store, people we run into that are behind a desk somewhere. They might be the IRS auditor that is probably going to cost us a lot of money and we want to get really irritated and mad at them but we're going to love them without condition. So even if they take my whole bank account, I'm not going to get irritated and mad at them. See, you can't do this on your own. It has to be done as a result of your walk with the Spirit. Then verse 5 says, It doesn't behave rudely, it doesn't seek its own, it is not provoked, and it thinks no evil. It doesn't behave rudely. Good manners. It is going to be poised. It is not going to react. It is going to be calm. This relates to humility, and it relates to gentleness. It doesn't seek its own. It's not self-absorbed. It's not about how it makes the one who loves feel. It is about treating the one who is loved the way they ought to be treated according to the standards of God's word. It is not provoked. It's not easily irritated or made angry. And it thinks no evil. It is not going to worry about things and manufacture uh, problems and things that are uh, contrary to what is desired. Uh, It is going to instead focus upon that which is right. It's not going to imagine uh, evil. It's not going to imagine sin. It's not going to be imagined coming up with these other kinds of Uh, kinds of things. It thinks no evil. It is not going to be easily uh, provoked or easily influenced to think bad of the person. And in verse 6, it does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't have joy because uh, the other person has sinned or failed. Someone who did you wrong and now they are disciplined and they reap the consequences of their bad behavior we we don't walk back around the corner where no one can see us and go yes they got what they deserve okay that is not love we're not going to rejoice in iniquity we're going to rejoice in the truth the truth see love is related to truth that means it ha- has integrity Integrity is not going to be tossed to and fro by the various changes in our emotions. And then we come to the last verse here, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Actually, the first word, bears all things, is a word that has the idea of covering something over in silence. You're not going to make an issue out of it. You're just going to let it slide off your back and go forward. Does that mean you're going to live in a fantasy world that everything's okay? No, but you're just not going to rise to the bait and challenge it and get upset and angry. Believes all things. Think about a mother. I mean, a good mother, not a fantasy world mother, but a real mother. And her kids do things, and she knows they do things, but she's not going to make an issue out of every little bad thing. 
she's going to believe the best in her kids, even though she knows they're not always the best. That's what this kind of love is. And it hopes all things. It hopes the best. It's not looking at the negative, but is, is hoping, focusing on, on the best. So it believes all things, hopes all things. It's not believing all things in, in some sort of way where they're just, they're just credulous and taken advantage of. But they're, they want to believe the right things, the best things for the person they're loving. And then at the end, it is enduring all things. The word is one familiar to us in the Greek, hupomone, which is part of the Christian life. It's just stead, being steadfast, being, being enduring the situation, whatever it may be, and not putting the focus on self. And then you come to really the last statement that the transition into the last part of the chapter, and that is the beginning phrase of verse 8, love never fails. It is the key to stability. And love is that which is necessary for all of our actions. Now, we don't measure up to that very well. It's a growth process. We don't start off walking by the Spirit and doing it right we sin a lot as we grow and we're in the word and God and we're walking by God the Holy Spirit then God the Holy Spirit is going to produce these things in us slowly incrementally over time because whether you realize it or not your heart and my heart are still stubborn and deceitful and wicked above all things but God the Holy Spirit's in the business of transforming that and so this, when we see this in people, this is the character of Christ that is being produced in us. doesn't mean we're not going to turn around and sin five minutes later. But hopefully it won't be like it was maybe 20 or 30 years ago because we are growing and we're all in that growth process and we never arrive at the destination until we die. And then when we're face-to-face with the Lord, that sin nature is no longer part of who we are, and that is when we realize our salvation. But this is what Paul talks about with a worthy walk. We have to have a standard. We have to have a guideline. We have to know what that looks like uh, to walk worthy. And to walk worthy means that it is going to be accompanied, that it is going to be accompanied by humility It's going to be accompanied by patience. It's going to be uh, characterized by love, that that we actually are using love as a way to handle difficult people, difficult circumstances, and we are going to bear with one another, put up with one another by means of love. And next time we'll come back and look at that next verse where we are endeavoring, we are being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And there's a lot of connections in the Scripture between walking by means of love and maintaining unity in the body of Christ. And it's not at the expense of doctrine. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer, and then we'll come back next time to look at that next verse. Father, we thank you so much 
for all that you do for us, for salvation, trusting in Christ for everlasting life is not the end, it's the beginning. For at that moment, we are born again. We are regenerate. We are given a new life in Christ. And now we have to nourish it. We have to uh, eat the right kind of spiritual food. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We are to desire that unadulterated milk of the word that we may grow. As our Lord prayed, we are to be sanctified by truth, by your word. This must be our priority. It is the Spirit of God who uses the word of God to mature the child of God. And if we are not in the word and the word in us, then we will not be going forward in the spiritual life. This is our challenge, to make it a priority. Now, I know there are some here, there may be some here, there are some listening, maybe now or maybe at some later time on the Internet, and are confused about just what is necessary to go to heaven when we die. The answer to that is very simple. The most simple way it's expressed in Scripture is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the God-man who went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And by trusting in him, we know that we are not trusting in our good works. We are not trusting in anything in us for salvation. We recognize there's nothing in us that, that impresses God. It is the possession of Christ's righteousness that impresses God. And when we trust in Christ, we are freely given the righteousness of Christ as our cloak, as it were, and we are declared to be righteous. And so it is my prayer that if there's anyone listening who's never just trusted in Christ, who's never just recognized that, yes, I can do nothing to impress God, to save myself, God must do it all, he's done it in Christ, and I trust in him alone. That is all that is needed. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we must do, with what we have learned. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.